Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. This is for the week ending August 14th, 2020. This is our 43rd video cast and 33rd podcast episode. So as always, we're going to kick it off with our uh, media spots real quick and what we covered. Uh, first was CGTN America TV yesterday. We were on and they wanted to discuss the impact of COVID on jobs. And what I was covering was that uh, as of January and February, we were at our lowest unemployment rate since the early 1950s after World War II. And because of having to close down uh, businesses for COVID, uh, it spiked up to 14.7. We've now fallen back to 10.2. And um, uh, looking at the initial jobless claims this week, yesterday beating uh, um, expectations coming in at below 1 million for the first time since the pandemic started uh, at 963,000 versus 1.1 million estimates. And that's also down from the April peak of 6.86 million. Um, so that was really good news. Continuing claims were less than expected, down to 15.4 million uh, relative to the peak in May of 24.9 million. And uh, the unemployment ratio came down uh, from 14.7% peak to 10.2. Average hourly, uh, average weekly hours worked uh, actually hit a record a couple uh, reports ago, um, which was nice to see because during the great financial crisis, they plummeted. Uh, the other thing that was interesting is... Um, of the jobs lost, so the combined was 21.5 in March and April, we've regained 9.25 million in the last three months, May, June, July, which is 43% of the jobs lost have already been regained, which is just amazing. And it's testament to the magnitude and speed of the action between the administration, uh, the uh, Secretary Mnuchin obviously played a big role, Larry Kudlow, Congress and the Fed all coming together in record speed and then global fiscal stimulus and global monetary stimulus as well. Uh, so that's exciting to have regained 43%, more work to go. Uh, President Trump issued the executive order that we anticipated last Friday, he issued on Saturday, which means it looks like uh, there, the extended unemployment's going to be, I know there's been is it 300 and the states pay 100 and then they came back and said that the federal will pay 100 percent either from previous funds they gave them or straight away but they have more than enough in the fema emergency fund i think this package is going to be like 44 billion or something and they've got more than that so they can do it through the executive order which means the fiscal cliff that everyone's been worried about is no longer really a factor albeit um, it's not 600 extra per week. So they used to get 400 from the state and 600 from uh, the Fed. It'll be 400 and 400, which is $3,200 a month, which for many people that were receiving it throughout the country, maybe not on the coast in particular, but throughout the country, that's uh, in excess of what they were earning before. Certainly at the $600 level, now at the 400, it probably incentivizes a lot more people to pick up jobs, which uh, we saw in the JOLTS report. We're gonna cover the economic data later in this uh, podcast video cast. Um, uh, job openings continue to rise. So there are plenty of jobs out there and we 
did the it seems like the best of both worlds was done on the one hand we didn't hit a fiscal cliff because uh people's state unemployment is still going to be doubled it's not going to be 150 percent you know it's not going to go from 400 to a uh, thousand is going to go from 400 to 800 that's coming out by executive order immediately uh, so that's a good thing no fiscal cliff on that front but on the flip side people realize oh my gosh this almost went to zero if a job comes i got to take it and i got to beat the crowd back to work because you know if this lasts four weeks or six weeks until that emergency fund fema emergency fund is drained then um, I don't want to be the last person looking for a job. So I think that was reflected in the um, continuing claims coming down, the unemployment rate coming, uh, 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 going in the right direction. I think people are now sensing this. So those who can get a job and there's jobs available, rather than being incentivized to stay home, they're now going to go take those jobs and that's going to help the unemployment rate and get things uh, going even faster. So it's the best of both worlds on the extended unemployment. Do we still want to see stimulus checks to those most in need? $1,200 an adult, $500 per child under a certain uh, income barrier like the first one? Yeah, that would be nice. We'll see if that happens in coming weeks. Uh, my sense is that uh, if it continues to require uh, money to fund mail-in voting, no deal will be done. If, it's, uh, if they can negotiate on that, I think that the administration is going to be willing to give more money to the states than they're initially offering, which would uh, hopefully meet, you know, uh, get the Democrats to move in, the, move in the direction if the administration's willing to move in the direction. But if it comes down to mail-in voting, then there's going to be no deal. And candidly, the amount of money that's been authorized and put into stimulus uh, and uh, and unused, you know, we've had close to ten trillion dollars between stimulus, liquidity, and aid authorized. We've probably used about a third, you know, well, balance sheet expansion three trillion, uh, but, and then you have the CARES Act. But a lot of the facilities for the Fed, Main Street lending, etc., have not been fully used. So we still have huge capacity. Money supply growth has increased by 25% in the last three months. Usually about a quarter of that goes into nominal growth. So you could expect 6.5% of GDP growth in 2021 if history is any prologue when you have money supply growth of that magnitude, which will be the fastest rate in a long time. So, um, you know, it's like a frog in a pot. You know, no one's hot enough where they have to blink to do a deal like like people did in March and April when we were in the middle of a catastrophe. I think it's the best for the country for people who are still suffering if they can get this done. Uh, unfortunately, the president can't get the stimulus checks done by administrative action. Otherwise, he would to help the neediest people. So um, hopefully they'll come together and, you know, do a carve out at least for that and leave the other stuff aside until after the election. Um, but we'll see. So, um, uh, you know, we we covered that and and they also wanted to know my interviewer's name was Sunny on CGTN America. She said, well, why is why are things going so well? Uh, there are five key reasons. Earnings and estimates continue to beat. Um, as we know now with 90% of the earnings and about 83% beat rate, uh, estimates are going up for the first time since Q1 of 2018. So uh, consensus is now well above $165 of earnings for the S&P 500. 
um, economic data, which we'll cover at the end. The uh, Citibank Economic Surprise Index is still at record highs, meaning the amount of data that is beating consensus estimate estimates on a daily and weekly basis is still at record highs. Um, the stimulus aid and liquidity we just covered, money supply growth, we're getting vaccine news, good vaccine news and therapeutic news on basically on a daily basis now. Hundreds of shots on goal, we're getting closer and closer, so that's all, always good news. And the new cases are, are finally uh, slowly and stubbornly declining. Certainly the Sun Belt's coming off the boil now. The epicenter, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut's doing phenomenally well. And then we're getting hot spots as it migrates into the Midwest, uh, but on balance, uh, they're coming down, which is a good thing. So that was CGTN. I want to thank Zaina Al Saib for having me on. And uh, moving on to yesterday, the article we're going to cover today is called The Gordon Gecko Gridlock is Good Stock Market, which I put out yesterday morning. I wrote Wednesday night. And it was actually picked up in pretty much in whole by Sean Langolis at MarketWatch. Uh, MarketWatch, Wall Street Journal, Dow Jones, and Barron's are all one group. And you can go to MarketWatch. You can either just click on the website under Featured On. It's there. Or um, go to MarketWatch and click on Sean Langolis or uh, search... Uh, he titled it, Here's How Savers, Both Republicans and Democrats, Should Vote to Avoid a Huge Hit to Their Nest Eggs. So he's a better highlight, um, a better um, title writer than I, headline writer than I am. Uh, that's why he's a pro. But uh, thank you to Sean for picking that up. And you can see it at Market Watch with comments and all. There are quite a few. And you could tell that probably 50% of the comments, the people didn't read the full article. They just read the first sentence and drew conclusions. Uh, good to know. But uh, so that was a, a real honor and, and very exciting. And then on Monday, I want to thank Medicine and Amber Warwick for including me there in their article on Reuters. Um, they were just asking about the market and, and uh, the quote that they took from uh, a five minute conversation was, I think the path is uh, paved now between the vaccine news, executive orders, economic data and earnings, and that money on balance in coming weeks and months will continue to move into cyclicals. Uh, particularly for many of the pe people who missed the rally, cyclicals is the only place where you can still find value. So that theme persists and it actually played out this week. We're gonna cover that uh, right now. So for the article of the week. And by the way, for those of you tuning in, it's Friday night. If you're tuning in to hear about the elephant in the room, what Warren Buffett did in his filing tonight after the close, we're going to spend a lot of time on banks. Uh, so, so hang tight, but uh, let's, or, or fast forward, but, uh, but hang tight. So the article we did is called the Gordon Gecko Gridlock is Good Stock Market and Sentiment Results. For those of you who have been around for a while, you remember the 1987 classic film, Michael Douglas played this character, called, a corporate raider called um, Gordon Gecko, <laughs> And he gives this quintessential speech in the Roosevelt Hotel on 45th and Madison. Um, and um, that greed is good as it related to taking over a bloated company with huge amounts of middle management, cutting costs, et cetera, et cetera. Corporate raider type theme from the um, uh, from the milk and junk bond era when anyone could raise a ton of money, kind of like the SPAC era right now, and uh, and buy companies. 
so we we crossed out greed we put in gridlock and that is because we're now some 80 days out from the election and it's really important that everyone listening to this regardless of whether you're a democrat whether you're a republican i'm sure uh, my bet is there are many independents listening to this um i i think i probably attract mostly centrists but um leaving that aside we need to understand the implications of the election results as they relate to the stock market. This is a stock market uh, podcast videocast. This is not a political political uh, uh, podcast videocast. This is not a social. This is not a moral or ethical or religious podcast. This has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with whether the stock market goes up or down. Uh, so we're we're framing the subject from that point of view, and then you have to add your own color based on your hierarchy of uh, priorities, etc. Uh, but for the purpose of this this uh, podcast videocast, we're going to deal with the impact on the stock market. So um, the punchline is just to cut to the chase for those of you who like the Cliff's Notes version. Uh, for the stock market, it really doesn't matter which party wins so long as no one wins complete power, okay? So provided there's not a sweep of the executive, Senate, and House, um, I think generally any other outcome is going to be bullish for the stock market. And that particularly has to do with uh, what has already been set in motion with the stimulus aid, liquidity, money supply growth, um, recovery coming out of recession, etc. So, um, so, so that's that. Now, you can say sentiment has a lot to do with it and people are going to feel one way if, if one administration is elected and another way if another administration is elected. And that, that's fine and that's the intangible that really can't be measured. We're not going to get into that. But I did find a table from Bank of America from the 2018 midterm elections. And what they basically did was they took the return stock market returns from 1928 to 2018 and they showed what were the returns like um, if it was a republican sweep if it was a republic a democratic sweep if it was a democratic split a republican split etc and what the returns were like um, during those periods now the problem with this table is that it's skewed because it started in 1928 versus 1934. If if you take the Great Depression, which is the blackest of black swans, out of it, basically, if you had a Democratic sweep, uh, your average return was 14.1% a year. If you had a Republican sweep, your average was 14.0%. If you... Um, so that might be that might have skewed up. So more or less, it's it's basically the same. If you have a Democratic sweep or if you have a Republican sweep, about 14% a year during those periods. Uh, the splits are bullish, um, but the and any combination of splits are are perfectly fine. Democrat or Republican Senate, so long as no one has has complete power. Now, the problem is. <coughs> This time is actually different. And I never say that, but I'm going to explain mathematically why it's different. So while it doesn't matter if you have a sweep historically, it does matter this time because there is a major policy prescription on the table related to corporate tax rates, which affects earnings for the S&P 500. And when you affect 
the equation, which is basically earnings times some multiple, the multiple being affected by expected growth and the discount rate or interest rates, how, how, how you discount uh, uh, net present value, then um, once you affect one side of that equation, oftentimes it affects the other, but it certainly affects what comes after the equal sign. And to, you know, ideologically, you know, Democrats think they're better because they tax more uh, and they, they, you know, they, they tax the rich. Republicans think they're better because they don't tax. But fundamentally, if you look over time, they're basically the same because what the Republicans do is they borrow and spend a lot uh, versus the Democrats who tax and spend a lot. But fundamentally, they both do the same thing, which is they spend. And I'm not making a commentary on whether spending is good or bad. I'm kind of like uh, Friedmanite with, uh, you know, with, uh, with a Keynesian middle name kind of thing. So I'm like a blended drink, so to speak. Uh, so, I, you know, it is what it is, but it's just they get to the same end point in different ways. One is taxing, one is, is borrowing, but spending is the end, end result. The private equity folks listening in uh, <laughs> or reading the, the article know all too well that borrow and spend always looks better in the short term because you can show earnings power today that you'd not be able to if you had to reinvest all your profits due to lack of borrowing. So borrow and grow always looks better than tax and slow in the short term. Uh, yes, I came up with those two terms, borrow and grow versus tax and slow. Um, Anyway, I didn't file for a trademark, so feel free to run with it. Leaving that aside, um, the so basically going into November, uh, and I, I'm less concerned about what they do to marginal tax rates for personal income tax. You know that'll certainly affect us individually, but with regard to the stock market, um, what they do to the corporate tax has an explicit impact on earnings. So um, the Republicans say they want to cut capital gains even more. They're already low at 20%. Uh, they want to cut income tax for the middle class. And the thesis is that the growth that you'll get from that uh, will cover, the growth in the short term will cover the borrowing in the long term if you spur economic growth in the short term. It did work in the 80s and it did work in the 50s. So there is merit, merit to that argument. Um, if you recall the debt to GDP ratio in World War II, uh, late 1940s exceeded 120%. It was down to mid, mid 60% by 1953 and growth took off. It was an 18 year run till 1968. So, um, so that thesis played out. Now the democratic ticket is running on three things. You can agree with them or disagree with them. It doesn't matter, but, but here's what, what, what they're running on. One is they want to increase the corporate tax rate from 21% to to 28 percent uh and possibly 35 percent so uh that's one two they want to tax long-term capital gains and qualified dividends at the ordinary tax rate of 39.6 percent versus 20 percent uh that's going to you know if there's a democratic sweep remember you, you need all three you need the executive the senate and the house to pass this stuff so unless they get a sweep, this is not going to happen. If they do get a sweep, 
um, you're going to see a big sell-off in stocks because people are going to try to lock in the 20% long-term capital gains uh, before the new administration kicks in in January. So you'll see a crash um, versus uh, waiting for the tax to go up to 40%. And uh, the new Senator uh, Kamala Harris, uh, VP pick, has proposed a financial transactions tax. So uh, it would be 20 basis points of all your stock trades. Um, so, and bond trades would be, so basically on a $100,000 trade, you're looking at 200 bucks. Um, on a million dollar trade, you know, you're looking at $2,000 commission that, you know, that's, that's a big change. Bond trades at uh, 10 basis points and derivative transactions at uh, 0.002%. So um, let's get into why this matters. Um, so to get the price of the stock market, and you know a lot of you listening know this, but there are four four factors determine the value of the stock market. Number one is earnings. Number two is the PE multiple that's applied to earnings. How many years of earnings are you willing to pay for today? Uh, that is a function of two things. Which one is the expected growth rate. If you think growth is going to be faster, you're willing to pay more for those future earnings. And if you think it's slower, you're going to give a lower multiple to pay less. And then fourth is the is interest rates or the discount rate, uh, the price at which you discount uh, future cash flows back to present value. The higher that is, the lower the value of the stock market, the lower it is, the more you can pay up. So, um, but the most important of those four, earnings, multiple, expected growth, and discount rate, uh, is earnings. So, um, David Costin at Goldman Sachs put out a note recently that said, in the event of a Democratic sweep, um, we estimate that the Biden tax plan would reduce our S&P 500 earnings estimate for 2021 by $20 per share. He has it from 170 to 150. So his 2021 earnings are slightly above consensus, which is about 165, 170. I'm uh, sorry, 165, 166 for 2021. He says you, you knock it down $20. Now, uh, I wrote this on Wednesday. The S&P closed at 33.80. So if you use Goldman Sachs estimates, which are slightly higher, that means the stock market was trading at 19.88 times 2021 earnings. 2021 earnings defined by David Costin is 170. So 33.80 divided by 170 is 19.88 times. That's the multiple we talked about on earnings. So how many, year, how many times are, what is the multiple you're willing to pay on one year's of earnings? As of Wednesday, forward earnings was 19.88 times. Now, this is slightly above the five-year average, which is 17 times earnings, and it's well above the 10-year average of 15.3 times earnings. It's justified only on the basis of interest rates staying low. 10-year uh, treasury is uh, still below 1%. Uh, it went up from 67 to, I think, 77 base, maybe 80 basis points. I, I didn't look at it today. And growth expectations staying high. Now, so two things facilitate that. One is when 
more money is going back to business to being reinvested in the business versus going to government where money goes to die uh more or less okay there are exceptions obviously we need interstate highways we need programs to help you know those most in need we need a safety net we can debate all that later but money is more productively used in the private sector because um it's just like you spend your your own money better than anyone else spends it for you it's the exact same thing uh and deregulation has been of paramount importance the last four years so that's why growth expectations high interest rates are low high multiple is justified um so so that's that now what's different this time when um, historically, Democrats have run on tax the rich and take from those who don't need it and give to those who, who, who do. And that, that, that's a reasonable um, point of view. Uh, the, the difference here is now their, uh, their core platform is raising the corporate tax rate because historically we have had a high tax rate relative to global competitors. So... Um, so they couldn't say, let's raise the corporate tax rate from 35% to 45%. That would make no sense. All the companies would leave. So, so they, they never ran on that. Um, now that's the platform. And to go from 21 to 28 and lose $20 of earnings power, uh, here is the basic math that we're looking at. So um, if you look at what was the... 10-year PE multiple, the 10-year average PE multiple during a period when corporate taxes were high, i.e. expected growth was lower, was 15.3 times. The last 10 years average PE multiple, which was skewed during the period during which the corporate tax rate was high, it was 15.3 times. So if you take Costin's $20 hit to earnings on the corporate tax rate, if you have a democratic sweep, you're looking at 20 uh, uh Earnings would go from 170 to 150. 150 of, of 2021 earnings by the 10-year average multiple with a lower growth environment, 15.3 uh, times, gives you 150 times 15.3, gives you 2295 on the S&P 500, which is a 32.1% crash from Wednesday's closing prices. Um, uh, if you translate that into the Dow, which generally trade more or less around the same percentages. Uh, that would take the Dow from about 28,000 down to about 19,000. And this is not an idealistic point of view. This is just the math. You take earnings down $20 and you can't increase the corporate tax rate by 30 some odd from percent from 21 to 28 and not, um, you know, once you increase the tax rate, you're gonna you're going to lower lower the multiple and expected growth. So um, so that's what would effectively round numbers. You know, you people who haven't done the math have said you know you you'd lose twenty percent. I think it's closer to thirty percent because the 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 right multiple you wouldn't continue to get a high multiple in a low growth environment and a high regulation environment. You'd get an average multiple, 15.3 times 150, and that, that's where it gets you. So what does that mean in real terms? The average uh, retirement account is $2 million. You would look at a drop to 1.357 million. 
for someone who's 30 years old, losing 600 something thousand dollars is not a big deal. They have time to earn it back, $642,000. For someone in their 50s to 70s, they may never recover. Uh, so it does have real life implications. And um, it's, it's not a commentary in any way on social policy or style. For some people, they're gonna say, I'm willing to lose $642,000 of my retirement account because I am in such high disagreement with the social and political climate and I want you know, the world to reflect my worldview for my kids and their kids and $642,000 of my $2 million uh, or um, you know, $6.4 million of my $20 million retirement is uh, a small price to pay to put in the ideology and the uh, political policies that I think are going to be better for the world and better for the country. If that's how you feel, that's fine. That as long as you understand what the price is, so you don't. We can't have our cake and eat it too in this environment as it relates to the stock market. Now, leaving that aside, there are many people once they have the information and they understand the math, not opinion. But the math of it will say, I, I'm willing to write that check, 642000 of $2 million, you know, for, for the change that, I, you know, uh, this person feels that we need, then you should go ahead and do that. Now, for those who are more pragmatic or can't afford to make that luxurious uh, donation, then you have to look at um, the trade-offs. And you might say, well, I just need a change at the executive branch. And if that's the case, then I would hedge out. Personally, if I cared about the value of my retirement by either not voting for House and Senate or voting the other party as a check and balance. And conversely, uh, if you vote Republican for the executive, you know, it's highly likely that, the, you know, right now it looks like the Democrats have a pretty solid lock on the House. So you pretty much don't have to do anything. The Senate is up for grabs. So effectively, if you if if you voted Republican down the ticket, you'd probably wind up if you're you know with exec you know Republican executive, Republican Senate, and Democratic House. If you vote um, Democrat down the ticket, you're likely to get Democrat uh, executive, Republican Senate, Democratic House. But if you if you vote for the Senate and the Senate's loss and you get the Democratic Senate, that's when you get the corporate tax change and that's when you get this 32% uh, potential drop. Look, no one knows for certain exactly what's going to happen, but we do know the math of taking earnings down $20 and taking the multiple down uh, what the impact is. So that that is the impact on the stock market. So what I basically said was checks and balances is the best. Whether you get a Republican or Democratic executive branch, you want to make sure what either the Senate or the House is the opposite party, no matter what. And all of those scenarios, other than a sweep, are bullish. If you get a sweep, which you, it doesn't look like you'll get a Republican sweep, if you possibly get a Democratic sweep, that's where you're going to get this negative stock market outcome. If you get gridlock of any magnitude, then uh, it's bullish. We, we continue to go up. So if you're a Democrat, you'll be happy that you can have a Democratic executive branch and still be bullish. If you're Republican, you'll be happy that you could lose, you know, have a, a Republican executive and lose the Senate and still be bullish. Um, so there's something in here for everybody is what I'm trying to say, uh, except the one scenario which would really be problematic. So... Um, 
so from a stock market standpoint only, not making political commentary, not making social commentary. If you go on the Market Watch article, you'll see no one read the article. They just made their political commentary and opinion before they looked at the math, um, except the other 50% of people who actually read it and got it. And uh, uh, both on the Democratic and Republican side, I was pleased to see that as well. But, um, you know, I did a long thing of a few months back about the cost of caution, you know, when, um, you know, you can shut down forever, uh, but you have to understand how much it costs each day. And at that point, both in lives and in money. And I think at that point it was like, I'll have to look back, but it was basically like, um, I don't know, some some multi tens of billions of dollars a day of economic growth loss. So, you know, that was the cost of caution. And it's the same thing of a sweep. It's like for some people, that's that's idealistically the best case scenario. And now when you attach for the average person a six hundred forty two thousand dollar price to it, they may think twice. Um, Similarly, with the Republican sweep, um, you know, Historically, both Republican and Democratic sweeps are fine. It does about 14%. But um, when it affects affects one of those four pillars of the formula, earnings, you know, or or the multiple discount rate and expected growth rate, um, that's material. So I I wanted to get that that, um, message out. Now, Something to keep in mind with the current polls that we should all be aware of. No one, and absolutely no one, first and foremost me, knows what's going to happen in November. And last week's video cast podcast, I went into um, Trump's odds of winning. Did not look good. Okay, so he was at um, he was at like thirty eight percent relative to Biden at fifty eight percent, and that didn't look good. Senate control, uh, so. I'll just take current numbers. Right now, he's at 39.5%, so he's picked up a little bit since the uh, Kamala announcement versus uh, Biden at 57.3. It still looks like, you know, for an objective, if an alien dropped into my lap and looked at this uh, webpage, you'd say uh, Biden's going to win. Same with the Senate. It's right now at 40%. Republican, 59%, Democrat. So that doesn't look good. So basically what this is saying is sweep, which means you could have that 30% re-rating of uh, discount of the stock market, um, which at the earliest would be rectified in the midterm elections once people realize what they did to their retirements. So, um, so that was really bad news. And I asked on the video cast from a stock market standpoint, okay, that was bad news. That's what this podcast is about. Uh, everyone's all fired up 82 days in the election. If, if they think you're like selling a political idea, they get really upset. I'm just doing a stock market podcast. So um, so I said, if anyone has the data from 2016, like this looks really bad. What did it look like in 2016? And I actually found it uh, over the weekend. No one sent it to me. Uh, thanks for your help. No, <laughs> kidding. But um, basically, uh, I, on Wednesday, uh, on August 13th, which was uh, yesterday, of 2016, 
Trump's chances to win the presidency were 19.4% versus Hillary Clinton at 76.3%. So this exact point in the cycle. And by the way, with the October bus surprise with Billy Bush, it actually fell down to like 15%, which was weeks before the election. But for August 13th, four years ago, uh, he was at 19.4. Clinton was at 76.3. And that's why I say no one knows what the hell is going to happen in November at all. Right now, he's got twice the chance of winning in November at this time than he did in 2016. He's at, uh, uh, well, uh, he is at, as of today, 39.5 versus 19.4. And Biden is at the Democratic ticks at 57.3 versus uh, Hillary was at 76.3 on August, uh, on, in mid-August. So we don't know what's going to happen. They're all different types of variables. Um, Jeffrey Gunlack was out. Julia LaRoche did an article uh, for Yahoo Finance. And he was out saying he predicted that Trump was going to win last time and he's predicting the same thing this time. He might be right, but one is entirely too small of a sample for me to say, he know, you know, he knows he's the guy who knows. Uh, all we can do is go by historical data and, um, you know, the current data, you look at it objectively, you say doesn't look good. If you look at it relative to historical data, it looks great. Um, but. Again, what we're hoping for, where everyone can actually win, is gridlock. So if you're a Democrat, you want one of those things to be Republican. If you're a Republican, you want one of those things to be Democrat. If, if the stock market and your retirement value is your, one of your higher priorities. If it's not, and you're willing to take the loss in order to have the change that you think is important, then by all means, just know what it costs and then move forward with your decision. Don't make it in in the absence of the math. Like like when we talked about cost of caution, it's okay to shut down for six months. Just understand the cost and the amount of people. You know, um, right now, just, just which is mind-boggling, and I covered this about four weeks ago, less people are dying per day from all causes in the United States than has happened in decades. In other words, we have the least amount of people dying every single day in the United States than we have had in decades. Historic lows, okay? Now, why is that? Well, it's because a lot of people are at home and they're not driving cars and they're not crossing streets and they're not getting into crashes and they're not falling off their bicycles and they're not going to the emergency room. So, um, so everything is about perspective. You know, when, when, when you look at these things, everything has trade-offs and, and um, uh, that, that's what we're trying to, to lay out. Now, in addition to Gunlack, there's another phenomenon happening that few people are paying attention to. There's a reporter at Fox that started to pay attention to it. There's some articles in The Post that started to pay attention to it. But Kanye West um, is getting on swing states step by step. Some, they're contesting him and he's fighting. Um, he's got a serious thing mobilized. He actually put out hats and t-shirts this week, Kanye 2020 vision. I think that's a clever slogan. And the reason you don't want to uh, underestimate Kanye, you know, a, a lot of the coverage, they're trying to shame him for some uh, personal challenges that he's having that he's overcome many times in the past. He didn't get to where he is uh, without overcoming his, his health, health issues 
he knows how to overcome that, and, and I'm sure his family's helping him do that. So uh, don't underestimate, because he basically went from, uh, as Forbes puts, from broke to billions selling consumer products, meaning, namely sneakers and Yeezy wear and all of this stuff in the last few years. Now, you don't go from broke to billions selling consumer products if people don't like you. The whole basis of his brand, you know, he's not saying my Yeezy sneakers are have better technology than Nike's and it, they'll make you run faster. That's not the pitch. The pitch is, it, you know, I'm Kanye West by my sneakers because I'm cool. And, and the majority of the country believes that in that demo, in that age believes that that that's the case and i would buy yeezy i would buy his sneakers i think they look cool and i think he's cool and i love i love his music so um um so do not underestimate his ability to sell to the younger demographic that could swing things now what i also note that i think republicans aren't counting on because people look at this and they worry that he's going to split the vote on the Democratic side, just like Ross Perot split it on the Republican side for Bush in the 90s. Um, but what the Republicans aren't looking at is if he continues to get on all these ballots, um, he's going to draw a lot of young voters who would not ordinarily show up to vote. Um, and because you know, he's running under the, quote, birthday party because, you know, it's not Democratic Party, not Republican. He's calling it the birthday party because he says if he gets elected, uh, it's everyone's birthday, which I think is clever as hell. But um, there are no Senate or House candidates running under the birthday party. So when these people who ordinarily may not vote show up to vote for Kanye West, they're probably going to vote the whole ticket and they're probably going to vote Democratic, which means it could be a fear of victory for the Republicans who think that Kanye West is the um, new Ross Perot on the flip side, because while they may get the executive from getting the electoral votes, they could wind up losing the Senate, which, um, you know, if you're a Republican, that may upset you, but from a stock market standpoint, because that's all we're talking about here, that's also bullish. So it could be you know, Republican executive, Republican Senate, Democratic House, that's bullish. Uh, Republican executive, Democratic Senate, Democratic House, that's bullish. You know, Democratic uh, executive, Republican Senate, Democratic House, that's bullish. Just not the sweep. That's the one that's going to kill us with the corporate taxes, uh, taking down earnings, taking down the multiple, taking down everyone's stock values. Um, okay, so we covered that. Keep an eye on Kanye West. That's that's a serious um, factor that I think people aren't uh, accounting enough for. That could that could play out. Uh, finally, uh, we covered jobs, which we covered a lot on CGTN. You can see the trend here. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that. Unemployment's come down, continuing claims down, initial jobless claims below a million. Uh, this was the record uh, hours per week. You can see this popped up here a few reads ago, and it stayed at elevated levels, whereas the great financial crisis, it dipped all the way down to 33 hours per week. Here it's up uh, at 34 and a half. Um, 
and you can see how quickly we're gaining. We had two months of huge losses. We've already gained back 43% of those jobs, so that's a good thing. And then cyclicals update, as you can see, uh, and we spend a lot of time on in recent weeks, uh, as, the, as we get closer to a vaccine treatment slash herd immunity, this trade's gonna become more and more apparent. They started to outperform in a big way early in the week. So we just put the charts here from financials to technical. This is a ratio chart. You can see it's taking off off the bottom. Uh, energy to te uh, technology is bouncing off the bottom. Uh, defense stocks to technology, again, bouncing off the bottom. And home builders, which have already had a huge move off the bottom, they're, they're also bouncing this week. So that's positive to see. You know, if you get shutdowns in regions, you're going to see tech go back to perform. But as you, um, I think people are really just getting on with their lives. You know, I mean, they're going out, they're doing their stuff, they're putting their mask on. And as long as people get numb to those little flare ups and just continue to go about business, as we're seeing in the economic data, uh, cyclicals are out, uh, going to outperform because they always do in the early stages coming out of a recession. And we've just finished the two quarters of negative GDP growth. And uh, if you look at Atlanta GDP now, it's expected to be 26.4% GDP growth annualized for Q3. So that's going to be a huge quarter. And that's going to be very, very good for consumer confidence, business confidence, and the whole thing. So, uh, so this is when you have those huge galloping growth rates when cyclical, cyclicals start to outperform on a relative basis to growth. Finally, on the article, um, we saw the bullish percent come up to 30%. That's still nowhere near an extreme level. So people are still skeptical as we're knocking on the door to all-time highs. We came in with a, within a few points. I think it was five points on the S&P a couple days ago. Looks like it wants to bust to new highs on the S&P. That would be a nice thing. Obviously, a stimulus package would do that. I'm not holding my breath, although I'm just trying to figure out who has more at stake here? Because on the one hand, the Democrats have way more people in their districts that will get the stimulus checks just on, on demography and income because you have to be below a certain um, level and, 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 and their population will benefit most from the stimulus checks and they need more of the money for the states, but they really want the money for mail-in voting uh, which, you know, they're probably not going to get. So uh, especially after uh, Dr. Fauci came out and said there's no reason people can't vote in person like they have, you know, uh, throughout history. So that said, um, I don't my base case is that not that we my, my base case, as I said last week, I, I don't I don't know that I, I certainly don't think we're getting anything comprehensive. Do we get a carve out for the stimulus checks? That would really be a nice thing. I, I just don't know the answer to that, but that would certainly be something that could push us over to new highs. Um, but we'll take it as it comes. So that, that has some room to go before we get to frothy euphoric levels. The fear and greed was up to 74. I think it closed at 73 today, maybe. Um, 80 to 100 is the excessive greed. So we're getting close. Uh, but not quite there yet, so a little room to run. Uh, the National Association of Active Investment Managers is uh, still pinned at high levels, so we got to keep an eye on that. We'll buy any dips uh, for cyclicals and laggard names, and as it pertains to the stock market, gridlock is good. So that was the message of the week, gridlock is good. 
And uh, by the way, some people thought I was really, I was talking about um, gridlock this week and how that's bad. I, I was not referring to the stimulus package. Obviously, I'd like to see a stimulus package go through. Uh, but at this point, we have enough with the executive order. That's that's a good thing. It would be nice to see the stimulus checks. We'll see if that happens. But it's not a catastrophe if they don't come to it. It's better for everyone if they do. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, okay, so now we've gotten through the political stock market stuff. Let's get on to the after the close Warren Buffett sells. And all the headlines are Warren dumps banks and buys gold. Uh, that's There are a few things that need to be understood uh, to understand this properly. Number one is Warren Buffett has two guys that run a, a large portion of his portfolio. And you could usually reverse engineer their footprints. What's Warren? What's what's his two subordinates, Todd and Ted, who had pretty decent uh, track records managing money before they went to work for Buffett, but they were with much smaller amounts of money. So it's not an apples to apples comparison. Um, and it's really hard to discern. You know, some of the old time Buffett acolytes were really shocked when he brought them in. Um, but um, anyway, leaving that aside, Zero Hedge put this out. I actually hand calculated it. Uh, spent like an hour doing it, but uh, they put this out, uh, which makes it a little easier to understand. So Wells Fargo was trading a little heavy this whole week, and it was because this professor, David Cass, uh, had this article in Business Insider, Warren Buffett may have dumped his entire Wells Fargo stake last quarter, finance professor David Cass says. And they had it out there, and I was thinking, yeah, maybe. You know, he dumped... The big thing for Warren Buffett is reputation. So obviously Wells has had their reputational challenges, but that was over two years ago. So if he wants to say, I don't want to be associated with it, he should have dumped 100% of his stake two years ago when they got caught with the sales practices. They didn't. They defended them. They weren't completely happy with them. More bad news came out. More bad news came out. They kept saying, you know, Charlie was out there. Well, no one's perfect kind of thing. So, uh, so that kind of reason to sell is not really, um, you, you can't pull that two years later and say, well, I wasn't happy with, because they've also changed management. So now you have a clean slate. So that that's not the reason. The big surprise of the after hours thing was that um, Berkshire sold 61.5% of their stake in JP Morgan which has a pristine reputation and superlative management in Jamie Dimon. Like, he's kind of like the last guy in the world you want to bet against. So that was shocking and surprising that Berkshire sold 61.5%. And, you know, for a move that big, I have to assume that Warren was involved, um, which was surprising. And, you know, if you remember from his May 2nd, uh, annual meeting, he was spooked by the virus and, you know, he's very good friends with Gates and Gates was around saying like, this is really bad. So, um, and it, and it obviously it is and was in, in many senses, but not the magnitude of what it looked like at that time. And if you look across his holdings here in this chart that Zero Hedge put out, it looks more like, it looks less like a, um, 
I hate a particular sector or company and more like a guy desperately trying to raise cash. Um, and we covered after that annual meeting, you can look at our podcast video cast the week after May 2nd. So it would have been like, um, you know, call it May 7th, 8th or 9th. You can go to the website and we, um, put out the thesis that he, at that point, he made an allusion to un unknowable insurance exposure. And I think that he was, and, and not relying on the kindness of friends, you know, with your handout to ask for money when you need it. He's never wanted to put himself in that situation. He likes to be on the other side of that trade like he was during the great financial crisis, <clears throat> but he doesn't like to be there himself. So he sold 61% of JP Morgan, potentially because JP Morgan was also holding up at that time. Uh, uh, that's number one. Jamie Dimon was also pretty pessimistic during that period, worried about loan losses and credit reserves and that type of thing. So, you know, they could have just been scared at the moment. Um, he, uh, on, on his other banks, he kept Bank of America. So it, it doesn't seem like it's a thesis, uh, you know, purely against banks because he kept uh, basically his position in Bank of New York Mellon, it was down 9%. So he took down Goldman Sachs, he took down 100%. That's basically an investment banking operation. He took down JP Morgan 61.5%. He he left US Bank Corp basically the same, which has very little investment banking business. He um kept Bank of New York Mellon pretty much the same at negative 0.9%. So uh, and he took down Wells Fargo by 26%, which is big, but it's not nearly as big as Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan in percentage terms. Um, he also took down, in a big way, um, he took down Sirius XM. Uh, looks like, I, don't I didn't calculate the percentages because it's not a bank, but it looks like, give or take, uh, 60, 70%, give or take. Um, and he took down Liberty Media quite a bit. He took that down, give or take, uh, 40, 45%. Um, so he took down exposure across the board, like a guy who needed to raise cash or was worried for, for insurance exposure reasons because he couldn't quantify his COVID risk. Um, but he didn't particularly skewed in banks with big investment banking exposure like JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs. Wells Fargo has a smaller investment bank and um, Bank of America, he kept the same and subsequently has increased a couple billion dollars in recent weeks and maybe more, we don't, yeah, we don't know. And then he also bought back uh, five or six billion shares of his own stock. So this was initially, the headlines were somewhat shocking but given what the market, how it was trading this week on these headlines that he sold 100% of his Wells Fargo position, which, uh, you know, and some guy tweeted me, I was like, why don't you wait till the filings come out before you draw any conclusions? And sure enough, uh, this was an exaggeration and a, a really um, reckless headline. But nonetheless, um, he did trim. So he took off a quarter of his position 
um, and he took off a lot more of, of other positions. Now, the only thing I can say is you have to put in mind the context of where we were, just to give you an idea, um, the June quarter, this, this is filed August 14th, 40-some-odd uh, days after the end of the quarter. That means he was a seller between March 1st, I'm sorry, April 1st, and the end of the quarter in June. So somewhere in this range, he was selling the lows in JP Morgan, more or less the lows, because it's already rebounded back up above this cluster here. And the same was true with airlines, which he didn't sell 100 or 61% or 25% or 9%. He sold 100% of all of his airline holdings uh, from, from this period, uh, April and May period at the lows. And they subsequently rallied as a group. This is Jets, the, um, the, uh, ETF. They rallied as a group a hundred percent after he made the announcement on May 2nd. So this is May 2nd. He sold off all his airline stocks in this period after the crash. And then they rallied a hundred percent. They came back and now they're breaking out of this wedge. Um, again, I don't, it's hard to, you know, Buffett was the man, you know, the buck stops here. He went up on stage and told the story on May 2nd, why he sold the banks at the lows. I'm sorry, the, um, well, some banks too, but, uh, the airlines at the lows, um, I'm not sure what impact, you know, he, he obviously knows what kind of reserves he needs to have when he can't quantify the insurance risk, which no one could in March and April, and maybe to some extent he can't fully quantify today, although it looks like it's not going to be as bad as expected across the industry, and that's why they're all starting to, to move. Um, by the way, for those of you listening to the podcast, uh, go to hedgefundtips.com. You can fast forward to the 60-minute mark on the video cast to get the last bit. We've got to cover quite a bit on Warren Buffett here. So uh, it came out after the bell. I didn't intend to cover it, but it's an important subject because we've we've been talking about it for so long. So again, um, uh, you know, he did discuss at the annual meeting that his belief was they were going to have to raise too much equity over time, the uh, airlines that is, that he just thought it was better to sell at the lows than get diluted over time. And that may be proved to be true. In the short term, it's wrong. They rallied 100% after the announcement. They're now, uh, they consolidated and now it looks like they're moving up again. We don't, you know, but we don't know. Well, Warren Buffett doesn't think in terms of six months. He thinks in terms of six years or more, um, probably 60 years or more. So, you know, it's, the jury is still out on this one, but in the short term, they're moving higher. And what percentage of the decision was made by Warren Buffett versus what percentage of his the decision was, was were made by his less seasoned lieutenants who are successful in their own right, but have a different skill set that they came to Berkshire with. They were managing smaller companies, smaller cap stocks, more concentrated portfolios, uh, smaller amounts of money. It's, it's, it is a different skill set. That's not to say it can't translate because valuation is valuation, but um, been through less cycles. So how much of Buffett's decision, you know, Buffett knew he had to raise cash to have insurance buffers, but how much credit is attributable to him for selling the banks at uh, the banks and the, um, and the airlines uh, at these lows 
versus his lieutenants who are doing most of the, the trading and investing these days. It's hard to tell. I, I don't have a good answer for that. But all I can do is worry about what I do and take serious people seriously. And, you know, this is something that we're discussing because of that reason. But if you look at the long term, um, you know, this is Wells Fargo, for instance, um, you know, you're you're basically getting it at uh, 12 year old prices. There aren't many instances in its history where you can buy it at a 50% discount um, for very long. You know, you had one opportunity in the great financial crisis, excuse me. You had another opportunity in the recession of the early 90s. You got a 30% drawdown in, uh, in 2000, 2001, but not a real opportunity to buy it cheap. So basically you've had two opportunities in the last 30, 40 years to buy it at this discount to book. And even during the great financial crisis, when there 